Hello, and welcome back to the Chris Yeh Podcast. I am, as always, Chris Yeh, and I am joined today by a special guest, Scott Johnson of Blitzscaling Ventures, and he's back so that we can do another edition of our Blitzscaling Venture Deals Analysis. This time, we're doing it for the month of October 2020. Welcome back, Scott. Great to be here, Chris, as always. Well, just as a recap for anyone who hasn't been following carefully, what happens is each month, Scott and I look back over the deals that have been done by the top venture capitalists in the world, and we assess them for blitz scalability, and we pick out a small subset of those deals, usually the blitz scalable ones. Sometimes we include some other ones as well to discuss why we believe they are or are not blitz scalable in hopes of educating investors and other people in the power of the blitz scaling framework. So Scott, Let's talk about some companies. What's the first one we should discuss? Well, Kasai, C-A-S-A-I is how you spell it. And this is an Airbnb derivative that focuses on the higher end market. So when we ask wealthy people, have you ever used Airbnb? They say, no, I've heard of it, but I've never used it. And we ask them why. And it's like, well, because I like to stay at high-end hotels. And that's true with a lot of business travelers as well, because they like to accumulate points and they like the Marriott and they have good locations. And there's a, there's a guarantee of quality that you get when you stay with a top-tier brand hotel. And so the genius founders at Kasai said, look, there's an opportunity in the shared economy here for a, a brand that's known for quality. If there's room in the hotel world, then there's room in the shared economy uh, lodging world as well. And let's create that brand. And so they started Kasai. And if you go to their website, kasai.com, you'll see that they're mainly in Mexico City right now, but they have an overlay of quality, which is there's smart home technology embedded, and you know you're going to get good Wi-Fi, and you know it's going to be extra clean and have all the amenities that a typical Hyatt might have, for example, or a Marriott. So they're uh, they're applying that that model to this market, and we kind of think that's cool. Yeah, I do like this quite a bit. Obviously, Airbnb is a dominant player in home sharing or rentals or whatever you want to call it. And Airbnb just recently filed their S1. Things look great for them. They were actually profitable in their most recent quarter, thanks to their recovery from the pandemic. So things look great for Airbnb. And again, as we note, Airbnb is a classic example of a blitz scaling company that has won a winner-take-most market. But what Kasai reveals, and this is very interesting, is that, again, you may have won your winner-take-most market, but there may be adjacent markets where there's still opportunity. And I do think that high-end travel is a great example of this. You and I, Scott, have spoken with a lot of rich people recently. And I've noticed that when I speak to these rich people and ask them, have you ever stayed in an Airbnb? The answer is generally no. And that's strange to me because I am a cheapskate. And so I have absolutely stayed in Airbnb before. But I guess for the kinds of folks for whom money is no object, which includes the very wealthy, as well as those who are business travelers, they really want that reliability, the brand of the Four Seasons or of the Ritz-Carlton or what have you. And I've stayed at those places. Those are really, really nice. They're nicer than, say, a Hampton Inn or a Holiday Inn. And they're nicer, frankly, than the Airbnbs I've stayed at. So I absolutely see there being a place for something like this. 
They did a $23 million Series A. It was led by Andreessen Horowitz, and it was announced in October. I'm not sure exactly when the deal was done. As you recall, you know, sometimes these announcements post-date the investment by a fair amount. So sometime in the last few months, this company got $23 million. And when we first looked into it, we thought, oh, you know, are they actually sort of buying these apartments and owning them? That's not a model that we would get excited about. It's too capital intensive. And it's not a two-sided marketplace in that scenario, and they don't. So they, they, these are these are places they don't own. It's just they uh, they've had this overlay of technology and quality that they put in place. So it is really just like Airbnb, and so that's when we decided that we better include it in today's podcast. How about network effects, Chris? What do you what do you think? I mean, they're like Airbnb, so it should get a pretty good grade there. Absolutely. If you may recall, with Airbnb, the reason why Airbnb scores so well on network effect is because these are transactions that are high value, high consideration, highly differentiated transactions. And those things are even more true of Kasai. This is a premium stay, so it's even higher value than Airbnb. Instead of hundreds of dollars, it's probably thousands of dollars. It is a very high consideration transaction. People are going through and looking for the absolute best and differentiation is important. They want to stay in a place where they're going to have their every need catered to. It's going to really meet their desire for living in a first-class way. So I think that they also get a 10 out of 10 in terms of network effects. And I think that, again, what this illustrates is that the nature of the transaction really helps drive the level of network effects. Yeah, and recall that when we score deals, we score them on a 100-point scale. And while we're giving Kasai a 10 out of 10 in network effects, that translates to 29 points because we weight network effects and the next element, viral growth, very heavily. So distribution and network effects or land grab or winner take most those are the things that we weight the most. And so getting a 10 out of 10 in either one of those is a really big deal and really boosts your score. Let's talk about distribution next. And Airbnb doesn't get a perfect score in distribution, does it? And, and to how about Kasai? Is it the same or better? What do you think? Yeah, so Kasai has a couple things going for it. But in the end, I think it comes in at about the same or slightly lower level of distribution as Airbnb. So let's walk through it. One of the things that allowed Airbnb to have some level of virality is the fact that you have travelers who travel all over the world. People are not restricted to staying in one place. I think this is even more true of Kasai than it is of Airbnb. The people we're talking about, the business travelers, the highly wealthy travelers, I'd be willing to bet they travel more than the average Airbnb customer. So that's something in the plus column for Kasai. But then on the other hand, thinking about it, one of the benefits of Airbnb is the travelers are also hosts and the hosts are also travelers. So that creates a sort of cross-fertilization effect that I'm not sure is going to be there with Kasai. I don't feel like most super rich people are thinking, you know what I'd like to do? Even though I don't need the money, let me rent out my villa or let me rent out my luxury apartment. Yeah, they like having money. They like making money, but they don't like their own privacy even more. So I doubt they're going to do that. I just don't see that happening. So that is a reduction from where Airbnb would be. 
And then for both of them, I think that there's a whole host of travel complementary services, which could serve as potential distribution channels, be it the airlines and transportation places. Obviously, in Kasai's case, it's going to lean more towards the private aviation and the other rich person services. Maybe you even do something with Kasai where you're doing a deal with private banking clients, right? You go to Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan and work with them and their private banking clients. I think there's a lot of interesting possibilities. Well, but in I, the I, end, I add it all together. And I do think it's slightly less. Yeah. And, you know, think about business travelers. They're not flying private, right? They're they're usually not even flying first class. So I think you could plug into the usual online travel agencies and get a lot of demand that way. So you can compete with the likes of Marriott and Hyatt right in their home, right where they, uh, they, they advertise on Expedia. And if you're sort of in the ballpark there, a little lower, then you, you can get pretty good distribution that way. So, and attract customers. And so I, I, you know, I feel like there is a channel they can plug into. And so, you know, there's, there's certainly some opportunity to get scaled distribution that way. All right, now product market fit. What do you think? We gave them a pretty good score here. And I think that's because I'm a business traveler and I would love this. And I think there are a lot of people that feel the same. Absolutely. I think that if we look at the the kind of travel we're talking about here, which is staying in a first-class accommodations, and especially because this is Airbnb style, getting your own place, I think that's very appealing. And as a frequent traveler, I would absolutely welcome an opportunity to stay in something like this. And I think you agree, Scott, that would absolutely be true of you. And then it's a little more difficult for me to put myself into the mindset of the globetrotting billionaire. I don't know, Scott, maybe you have more experience with this. But again, I feel like because we have the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a greater premium on having your own place, not sharing any sort of hotel facilities or anything like that. I feel like this is a really good time for Kasai. Yeah, and you keep focusing on billionaires, and there are not that many of those. I think of this as a standard business traveler who just wants a, a better alternative to the Marriott, because sometimes the Marriott's not right near where you want it to be. And, you know, in the age of COVID, you don't want to be in an elevator in a lobby with everybody. And so, I, I, yeah, so having your own place and having it right near where your meeting's going to be or where you're visiting your family or whatever you're doing, uh, to me, you know, that's that's a real niche that uh, – that they found and boy, do they need to blitzscale though? Cause really what you want is you want to be everywhere. So no matter where you're traveling, you're going to find a whole lot of opportunity to find one of these, you know, really nice places. And so I, I expect 23 million is not going to be enough. I think for their B round, they're going to raise a real truckload of money if they can prove out the model. And uh, that might come pretty soon. And one of the things that makes a lot of sense, especially because we've got this pandemic right now, is if you can grow because you're a financial strength during the pandemic, you can gain competitive advantage over anyone else. So you can very well imagine Kasai going out there and locking up a lot more locations, really making progress while travel is depressed. And then when the vaccines are available and people really start to travel again, you could see an incredible rebound effect for them. And it's something that could be very beneficial and a huge tailwind. Yep. Uh, gross margin. So gross margin, this is a classic two-sided marketplace where they are taking a rake on the transactions. Those are the purest form of gross margin. So we give them a 10 out of 10. Good. And scalability, both on the people side and on the operations side. We didn't give them perfect marks here because this is sort of a, you know, you got a lot of customers here that are pretty demanding. 
Exactly. In fact, they don't do as well as Airbnb on these scores precisely for that reason. If you think about the org scalability, you're dealing with business travelers and also the wealthy travelers. They tend to be more demanding. They have a higher expectation of service. You need to staff up to a higher level of service. Mm -hmm. And so it's going to be more difficult to scale your organization. You're going to have a little more drag in terms of having to hire people to serve all those customers. And on the ops scalability side, same thing. Airbnb does not do as much to guarantee the quality of the homes. Here, you're making a brand promise. You're saying Kasai represents high-end travel. It's going to be done to a four seasons level kind of detail. And you need more people and you need better operations in order to make that happen. So for both of those reasons, Kasai is going to be less scalable than Airbnb on those counts. Yeah, they're making a smart home uh, differentiator here. They, they, they're usually putting technology into these places, not just having them cleaned up with some with some fresh towels. So there, there's something like you got to pay attention to at every location that might break. And so I, I, I feel like that's going to that's going to be a bit of an anchor for them. So they're they're going to need to be really smart about that. But overall, the score is an 83. And remember, anything above 80 is a really great score. That's an A for us. Like if you get anything above 80, you're getting an A in the course. And so 83 is very strong. Now we're going to talk about another company a little later that gets a 93. So stay tuned for that. But 83 is a very good score. So that's Kasai. The next company is Edlyft, E-D-L-Y-F-T. And this is a seed round. So this is something that we're going to watch, but it's very early. And so, you know, the score that it gets is sort of reflecting how early it is. It's a lot of things aren't proven yet or, or even shown. And so we can't give them full credit where down the road they might raise their score. But 77 is close enough to 80 for us to include it. And what Edlift does is on a campus, they create a two-sided marketplace where students can find tutors and other students who can tutor them in a course. And that's happening through the school right now. But when I talk to my kids who are in college, they say that's done in a pretty inefficient way. It's sometimes really hard to get a student to, to, to get an appointment. And so you end up coming to your appointment at you know crazy hours that you don't like. And and uh, frequently it's not for as long as you, and then you don't know what the quality is going to be. So you don't really get a one-on-one -on -one tutoring relationship and it's just not optimal. And so Edlift wants to fix that. And they're, um, you know, because it's a two-sided marketplace, I caught our eye. Kleiner Perkins was part of the seed round that they did. And Chris, you know, let's talk about network effects here. We have another two-sided marketplace. Absolutely. I really like this Edlift concept because what they've identified is a high value service, i.e. one-on-one -on -one tutoring, specifically right now in computer science, something that is really hard to grasp. And especially right now during the pandemic, when you can't really go to office hours and spend time with a professor, probably very valuable. And what's really clever about it is the focus on the individual school or campus, because obviously you want people to be able to help who have gone through the same class and you can even certify them, right? I got an A in CS106A, or in my case, an A plus, and therefore I'd be a good computer science tutor for this purpose. And so I love that as well. And then finally, here's the rub. Here's the really amazing thing. 
the cost of doing this because you have college students tutoring college students is very low. I was looking on their website and they were suggesting something like $15 an hour as the cost of tutoring. I mean, my God, go out and try to get a tutor for your computer science course. Good luck finding it for 15 bucks an hour. That's incredibly compelling on the demand side. And yet on the supply side, it's still compelling because if you're a student, you can teach these people, you can tutor these people, you can make more money than you would working on a standard job on campus. So I just really like it a lot. Now, in terms of the network effects and land grab element of it, what's interesting is the network effects are really local, as you point out. It's college by college, campus by campus, because different colleges may teach computer science in different ways. So what you really want to do is you really want to pull a Facebook and you want to really quickly dominate each individual campus. And based on that, once you've dominated a particular campus, you probably locked it in and you've won that market. But the blitz scaling element comes where you're like, well, if we figure out the playbook for dominating a college campus, can we dominate as many of the core campuses and key campuses as possible so that we lock in permanent market superiority? Right. So 10 out of 10 there. And, uh, you know, it, it, it pretty easy to see why speed matters here. Right. I mean, you explained it very well. So next we talk about distribution. Well, you kind of got to go campus by campus and get these things going. And then to attract the students is, you know, it's sort of a you got to attract the tutors and the students at the same time. And so there's this day zero problem here where if the student doesn't find a tutor, then right away, then they're going to be disappointed. And if the tutor doesn't get any business from the students, they're going to be disappointed. And so they really need a good playbook on how to enter a campus and win it. And, uh, you know, I worry about that a little bit. Yeah, I think that that definitely hampers their viral growth a bit. The other thing, of course, is that the viral growth on one campus doesn't necessarily help the viral growth in another campus. There may be some spillover effects. People are like, hey, I saw this on my campus You know, when they go, well, these days, I was going to say when they go home for Thanksgiving, these days, it's more like when they stay home for Thanksgiving. <laughs> but in terms of the distribution, I think the other element of it is, you know, they're hampered by the pandemic. The fact is, this would be easier if people were on campus. You could easily just go and drop off flyers in the classrooms where the computer science classes are being taught. I mean, this is something that is known. You can just look at the course catalog. It tells you where the classes are. It tells you how much they, uh, you know, what time they meet. And you just stand outside and hand out some flyers. So it's all hampered by the pandemic. I think that if the pandemic weren't on, it might get a slightly better score. But for right now, we're giving it a seven because there is good virality once you get established at a particular campus. It's just it's more difficult right now during the pandemic to do so. Yeah, and this is a good example of how these scores are very provisional because we could talk to the entrepreneur tomorrow and the entrepreneur could say, actually, we know exactly how to spin these things up in five minutes because guess what? All the students who are CS majors, uh, they actually list themselves on LinkedIn as CS majors and we can go through LinkedIn, get them all signed up as tutors and then we can go on campus, drop the leaflets. And so the days are a problem. So they, I don't know what they're doing. That's one way you might be able to do it. But it's just these scores are provisional. We're looking from the outside in. We're taking a few guesses. And so the score that we announce isn't the definitive score. It's a provisional score. It just means, wow, we better take a look at this one because it could be a blitzscaler. All right, moving on. We've got product market fit. I liked what you said about you know, the person's taken the exact course. There are competitors to Edlift who want you to talk to a generic CS major. 
and they can teach you the generic ways to, you know, handle hashing or whatever. And so like, that's, you know, that's kind of the national way of going about it. Not nearly as good as someone who's taken that course from that professor and knows what this test you're about to have is going to be, what's going to be hard, what's going to be covered, what's, you know, they're just going to have that insider knowledge that is so much more valuable. And by the way, it's way cheaper, $15 an hour. Absolutely. Now, I do think that one of the things that keeps it from getting perfect product market fit is just the fact that it's hard to say if just individual students are going to be good tutors, right? Right now, tutoring is done by people who self-identify, raise their hands. Usually they get some sort of training. We have no idea what kind of training these folks get on EdLift to become tutors. And we don't know if it takes a while for them to get be good at it. And so we have to hold back on giving them a top score because we need to figure out if that's actually working or not. But again, as Scott has mentioned, these provisional scores could be amended very quickly if we talk with the CEO and we learn, no, we've got this nailed down and it's going great. Yeah, the website does claim that they have some kind of training program, but who knows how good that is. And Chris is so right about the, the quality of the educator. Educating is a, a skill that some people are just born with. And it's also something that people, it, it's like, if you're really brilliant at a particular subject, that does not mean you can teach it well. And so it's just, you know, just you can see this in sports, right? The best players are not the best coaches. And it's sort of because sometimes if it comes too naturally for you, it's hard for you to explain how somebody can learn it. So I think there's a there's a challenge there for quality and we'll see how they solve it. Market size. We didn't give full credit here, did we? Yeah, there are some inherent limitations to the market size. First of all, it's focused on the college market, which itself is a limited market. Secondly, right now, at least it's focused on computer science. Maybe that's going to change in the future, but computer science, while very popular, is still not the entirety of the college experience. And if you think about it, the, one of the things that makes it so appealing, the relatively low cost of it also helps to limit the market size as well, because it just tends to impact the revenues. This is a disruption of an existing market, a lower cost tutoring solution. And by definition, that's going to end up reducing the size of a market as well. Although I would argue it's probably going to be counterbalanced by the fact that more people will look to tutoring than ever before. So all of these things together say that the market size is relatively lower. And we gave it eight out of 10. Now, the interesting thing is maybe as the company evolves, they find ways to expand further. It's not just computer science. It's now all the sciences, or maybe it's mathematics. And now you're a bigger part of the curriculum, the more services, more classes. Maybe you expand beyond colleges and you're able to get into some sort of tutoring for MOOCs or tutoring for certifications of technology platforms and things like that. So this could become bigger over time. It's just, we'd have to see it first and hear it described to us. Oh, really? there's no reason why it couldn't work at some of the upper levels of high school as well. Uh, you know, somebody who's taken AP bio could really help someone who's, who's already taken it could really help someone who's taking it. And that's maybe a stretch, but I, I, I certainly think that it could extend to almost every subject area. And so, uh, but even if it does that, you're right that the pricing is such that, you know, how big can it really be? It's, is it really going to be tens of billions of dollars in market size they probably have to do the whole globe to do that, which they could do. But right now we're cautious and we give it an eight out of 10. 
So gross margin, you know, with, with two-sided marketplace, just like we said before, so they get full credit there. Organizational scalability, you know, they have this this sort of training thing, but, you know, I think that's online and, and, and automated. And so I don't think there's a human element there. So we're going to provisionally give them full score for that scalability, operation scalability. There's, you know, there's going to be some managing of these tutors and managing of the of the students and, and some some customer service. So eight out of 10 for that. So total of 77, but with real upside opportunity, if they can f- convince us they have better distribution than we're intuiting, then I think this could easily score above 80 and we could get excited about it. I'd like to see their argument about market size before I get too excited. But yes, this is definitely something worth watching and a great concept with great uh, with a great network effect. And, and that's why, by the way, the process of scoring these companies is the beginning, not the end of what Blitzscaling Ventures does. It's the beginning in the sense that it identifies the targets, but from here, when we reach out to them, I go ahead and try to get in touch with the CEO. We try to learn more about what's going on with the business. And by doing that, we learn information that allows us to alter our provisional scores, gives us a better sense of whether or not we think this is something that's actually blitz scalable. And of course, we do standard due diligence that every venture capital firm does, looking at the numbers, considering the management team, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we have this huge advantage because we start off by looking at just the best of the best, the companies that have been funded by the greatest investors in the world that look like they are blitz scalable. Indeed. And usually there's one or two or three every month this month, you know, pretty good haul with three companies. And that last company is a company called Remotion. And they are um, funded by Greylock. And so we, we obviously are close to Greylock and really respect their decision making. And so that certainly catches our, our interest, but that's not enough, right? Greylock does a lot of deals that don't have a winner take most element. This one does. So let me describe Remotion. It's a video calling platform designed for remote teams. So it's a synchronous way to chat live with people on your team. It's a little bit like a video Slack, but Slack is still asynchronous. This is like if you're at an office setting and somebody is in a cube next to you, you can just pop your head up and say, blah, 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 and have a discussion and solve a problem or share some information, whatever you need to do. You can be spontaneous and have a very high bandwidth discussion spontaneously. And that's missing right now from the work at home experience. You can schedule a Zoom and then have an interaction, but you can't just click on somebody's picture and start talking to them. And so that's what Remotion has created. And I've started to use it a little bit and it works. It's really cool. This is a series A that Greylock did. It's a $10 million round, a little more than 10 million. And Remotion is spelled just like you think. It's remotion.com if you wanna go check it out and download it for your team. I, I think, you know, I'd love for you to give it a try and then give us some feedback if you think it's cool. So Chris, any more comments on the business? I mean, what's really exciting about this is it is a new mode of collaborating. And just think about how much is held up by simple friction. Yes, in some sense, if you wanted to call someone, you could go ahead 
and start a Zoom or do a Google Hangout and wait for it to happen. But just that level of friction involved in setting it up and then maybe that person isn't there is enough to discourage us from doing it. I mean, I see this happen all the time. People go ahead and they slack back and forth when a simple phone call or video call could resolve the problem right away, but they don't do it because there is that additional overhead. And what Remotion does is just take away all that overhead, make it super duper easy to do stuff. And that's a really powerful model. In terms of the network effects and land grab, I mean, from a network effect standpoint, there's a lot of benefit to getting all the members of the organization into it and also getting just people in general into it. I'd be interested, Scott, to hear how this works across organizations. Can you only do remotion within a specific team or can you do a, a team that involves people from different organizations? How does this no, work? No, no. So, yeah. So your team ID is just based on your email. So you can have a team across organizations, no problem. You know, it's just an email as you, you log in as your email and that puts you on and you can have more than one team that you're part of if you want to. And so, you know, there's on the product market fit there, you know, I wonder how they're going to handle being a member of multiple teams and if they can handle that seamlessly, there might be some friction there. I love that you use the word friction because that's really what they're doing is taking friction out of the video chat process. And so I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, what the, the, <clears throat> the way I think about the network effects is more within an organization. And then we'll see in distribution how the viral effects extend beyond an organization. But yeah, absolutely. Um, you can go beyond your organization. And that's why viral growth works here. And let's talk about distribution next. Yeah. When it comes to distribution, again, I see there being a lot of viral growth because what happens is whoever are the handful of people that you're working with all the time, you're going to say, hey, can you sign up for this remotion thing? I will say that, you know, I'm not happy with the fact that they don't yet have a Windows version. That's going to cause some problems in terms of growth until they fix that. But that's just a technology issue. I'm sure they'll be able to get to that in time. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, and that's an obvious thing they need to fix. It's funny that there was a there was a point in time where you would never build for Mac first. And it's it just it's, it speaks to the power of Apple that here's a company who actually did go through the did, did the Mac e ecosystem first. And uh, that's that's just uh, something that I wanted to point out. All right, so we've got a 10 out of 10 for network effects, 10 out of 10 for viral growth. That means that they're starting off right off the bat with 59 out of 59 points. So th this is going to be a big scorer. As I mentioned earlier, they get a total of 93 points here. There are very few places where we knock off points for this company. Um, anyway, so let's talk about product market fit. That's one place where we do knock off some points. Yeah. So in terms of product market fit, this is a new consumer behavior. And so it's hard to tell, is this really going to be productive or not? It sounds great in principle, but let's just sort of play this out. Let's imagine that everyone who you work with has your video avatar up on their desktop at all times, and they can reach out to you at any point in time. That includes your boss. Now, all of a sudden, you're sitting home at 9.45 at night. What's going, what are you thinking about? You're like, do I really want to talk to someone? Am I really dressed for this? It's another way that the work world is just intruding ever further into our lives. And so as a result, I'm like, I don't know. I'm not sure how people are going to feel about this in the end. It could be great. It could not be great. And I think we got to see how the behavior evolves. Yeah, you can turn yourself on and off. So you can, you can say I'm available and say I'm not. But available. that adds friction. And that adds friction. And you have to, you forget, right? You forget to turn it off. And then mm -hmm. suddenly somebody's talking to you and you didn't expect that to happen. And that could be awkward. So you're right. So there's, there's some chance that this is, you know, this is going to take a little figuring out. 
and you know maybe they could do some sort of vision thing where uh, now that won't work. Never mind. I I I can't solve that one just sitting here. So I'm- and we don't have to solve it. That's the beauty <laughs> of being investors instead of entrepreneurs. We just have to bring up the issue. Yeah. I will point out that I mean in the early days when the telephone was invented, people were terrified that the telephone would mean the end of private time. It would just ring constantly, and you would you would have to respond. And and the fact is, people find ways to adapt, including ignoring the damn thing. So we'll have to see how this works out. And again, I am open to the possibilities, but until Until we see that behavior really fixed in, we're not going to give a 10 out of 10 on product market fit. That's right. Okay. So market size, uh, you know, we're, we're in the, 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 as you said, the collaboration market, which is a global thing that's very important right now. So what do you think? Well, I'll put it this way. If you think Zoom is a 10 out of 10, then this is a 10 out of 10. Yeah. And I think that's exactly what it is. Yeah. And I think that's probably what they think at Greylock too, which is, you know, they only go after really big markets of great. Like they need an argument for scale that's really bulletproof. So I think we're pretty safe there on the market size. Gross margin, uh, you, know, you know, there's some cost here. Um, Absolutely. I've, I've Having run a live video pioneer, I can tell you there's a lot of costs involved in video. There is cost, whether you're buying servers and running it yourself or whether you're buying services from Twilio, Amazon Web Services, etc. Live is inherently more expensive than recorded. Yeah, this is the end guy that I'm going to talk with you too, right? I mean, Exactly. Yeah. So this is not easy. And so there will be costs involved that are greater than for most things. Again, think about something like Slack. Slack is charging people however many dollars per month. All they have to do is push a few text messages around. Here you've got entire video streams and you've got some level of video going constantly. So we gave it a nine out of 10 instead of 10 out of 10. Again, it's always great to have software margins, recurring revenue, but we do think that there are more costs involved than is typical. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I don't think they're going to solve that one. So we're not going to get to 100 points here, but 93 is still pretty darn good. Scalability, boy, you know, it does scale well. Like we've seen Zoom scale. And even in the onslaught of demand, Zoom was able to scale through the cloud to the, the sort of in unfathomable number of bits that they're pushing through the web right now. So I, I, I feel like there's really no sort of scalability issue uh, inherent in the product. Um, What about sort of the people side and the operations side? How do you think about that? Well, from the people side, really, there isn't a lot to be done here. I mean, the beauty of it is is it's it's something which is opt-in. It's not a consumer service. So you're not worried about the Zoom bombing of perverts or something like that. This is something which really is opt-in. So you don't really need to do much scalability at all in the organization. You just need to be able to keep the servers running. And then from the operation side, live makes it more complicated because it means that you have this higher degree of difficulty in keeping everything up at all times and higher degree of difficulty in terms of minimizing the latency in a way that recorded does not, but, you know, still eminently solvable. And so we gave it a nine out of 10 on ops. Yeah. Yeah, we did. And so that's how we got to a 93. The only places where we took a few points off were product market fit, gross margin, operational scalability. Those aren't the heaviest weighted factors. And so because they got perfect scores and the most important ones that the, the uh, take winner take most market and the distribution side are awesome in this deal. And so, you know, it, it gets a 93. And so they should be blitzscaling because, and there's another reason why they should be, which is if Slack decided to move into the live video world, 
boy, they've got a lot of users already. And so Remotion wants to be pretty far along by the time Slack figures that out. And same with Zoom. So, you know, then there are other collaboration platforms that could do the same thing. I think if they figure out the product market fit, people can copy them, bring it into their user base. And then, you know, this doesn't become the world dominating company. So they better, better go fast, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. And there are things that they can do. So for example, the different groupings within the organization, figuring that out, setting up different kinds of ways so that it's not just, hey, this is uh, can be recreated instantaneously by someone else. But the other thing I'll mention is if you think about live and live has these inherent issues around, hey, it's live. So if you flip off one service and flip on another, does it really matter? You look at the history of things like Twitch, for example, which uh, again, I competed with in the early days. And people would always ask me, what are you going to do when YouTube starts doing live? And I would say, first of all, it's very difficult to do live. Second of all, if you've done a great job of building up your live service and you've locked in and you've got all these network effects and other things like that, it's going to be difficult for YouTube to overtake you. And in fact, that's the case. Twitch is still the dominant player in live video, despite the fact that YouTube live exists. And this is true, even though people were asking me this question in 2000, and seven, 13 years ago. Good. Okay. So those are the three companies I wanted to talk about. What I forgot to mention up front is there were 110 companies that were announced that in the month of October. So that is back up to the level that we were seeing before the pandemic. So we've come full circle from a real lull over the summer. And in August, we had a low point, And then suddenly September, October, Boy, we've come right back up to the level of activity, and that's also reflected in the IPOs that we're seeing right now. And I, I got to tell you, there's a lot of, of fundraising going on, and it's being all done over video chat. So all of this activity, all these deals, they're all getting closed without people getting in the same room, and that to me is remarkable. Well, the way I would put it is this. I mean, we now are in a world in where there are vaccines where the preliminary results are incredibly good. And I feel like even though there is this second or third wave of coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, that's going to be a terrible tragedy. It's going to consume a lot of lives. It feels to me like it's not going to impact this boom that we have going on precisely because of the fact that the companies that are being funded now are companies that are remote first, that are dealing in things that are not affected by the pending. And if they were, they wouldn't be raising money. And the markets are themselves doing great because of the fact that they believe that there is more stimulus coming because of the fact that they believe that the vaccines are going to return us to normal sooner rather than later. So I think that we will probably expect to see continued heavy deal flow in the months ahead. Yeah. And another thing that I was talking to an entrepreneur today who, who was going to raise an A round and he said, it's, it's never been easier to get meetings on the calendar of investors if they think you're, you're, uh, you're, what you're doing is interesting. The calendars are, well, they're pretty full, but they're not nearly as full as when they were with in-person meetings. And the, so you can get a bunch of first meetings done in the first couple of weeks of your fundraising, whereas it used to be, you know, a pretty long lead time before you could get that first meeting. So <clears throat> that that may help with the, the recovery and activity. That may be part of the reason. Well, here's the dirty little secret about fundraising. And Scott, you can tell me if this is just me. I'm the only one who's shallow enough to believe this. 
But usually when you have these in-person meetings, when a team walks in within the first five minutes, often within the first 90 seconds, you've decided whether or not this is something that's actually worth doing. And one of the things that happened with traditional face-to-face meetings is you're like, well, geez, you know, they drove all this way here or they flew out to see me. I'm not going to just kick them out after five minutes and we have to schedule a full hour to justify this. Whereas nowadays I see meetings being set up for 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes all the time. It's just more efficient. Not only are people not driving, but the meetings themselves are shorter in recognition of the fact that it never really took an hour to figure it out. We were just doing it to be polite. Yeah, I think yeah that the 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 era of the one hour block for for pitch meetings has gone by the wayside, and so this is um, this is an interesting time, and we're uh, you know may you live in interesting times is a is a famous saying, and we're certainly doing that right now. Well, Scott, we've got a couple of predictions that we've made, which are going to be very interesting to revisit in the months to come. Again, it sounds like we're both very optimistic about things. I hope that we're right. But we're going to find out because guess what? In a couple of weeks, it's going to be December and we'll be able to look at November deals and we'll see, do these trends continue or do they begin to reverse? And we've got an exciting couple of months ahead. I just hope that you, know, you and I are both going to stay safe, stay remote and be able to continue bringing people this great content. Well, it's a lot of fun to do this with you, Chris. So I look forward to being welcomed back. Wonderful. Well, thank you everyone for listening into the Chris Yeh podcast. As always, please do like, subscribe, share, do whatever it is that you do to tell people about great podcasts that you enjoy. Scott, of course, is joining us from Blitzscaling Ventures. You can find that at blitzscalingventures.com. And I will be looking forward to welcoming him back in a couple of weeks to talk about November deals. Thank you so much for listening.